I'm going to warn you that today I um, have subsisted entirely on um, honey roasted peanuts and something called Mountain Rush, which is a it's Shasta's version of Mountain Dew. Okay, store brand Mountain Dew. Store brand Mountain Dew and and honey roasted peanuts. Are the are the peanuts at least you know name brand? They are Planters peanuts. There you um, go. Yeah, no, so it's good. I'm I, I'm I'm getting some good branding in, uh, and uh, it, it is a very abstract uh, Mr. Peanut though. He looks like I don't know. He kind of looks like he stepped out of like an N.C. Wyeth. Um, no, not N.C. Wyeth. He does very realistic stuff. I don't know who I mean. Uh, a, a vaguely, it's it's just a touch cubist, I guess. Is is this Mr. Peanut? guy so i don't know if that's like slowly becoming non-name brand if he's losing his individuality so it's like somebody put a picasso instagram filter on a mr peanut or something 100 percent. that is that is what it's like yes yeah well that sounds Um, great it's real great it's real great but yeah that's that's the kind of energy gonna get today because (laughs) of the mountain rush and the and the honey roasted peanuts and the frantic cleaning but i do now have a uh, something more akin to a pod space from which to record. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, the audio will be a little bit better. Um, well, I spent my evening putting together a grill mm. and then uh, and then grilling some burgers on it, which I did poorly. Ooh, but I'm still, not, yeah, I'm not one of those like grill daddies, you yeah, know? yeah, you know, those. Yeah. <laughs> They're like leather daddies, except they're crazy about meat. Right, right. Huh. Which is, I mean, also leather daddies, but, <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> grill, grill daddy is one of the most phonically unpleasant uh, terms I think I've ever come across. But, so, was it like charred or, 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 or raw? Like, no, how it, was, did you... it wasn't raw, it was... Uh... It wasn't hot enough, so I had to cook them for too long. So they got kind of dry, and they mm. were just you, know, you can get that good sear on the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have heard that. Yeah. I am also not a grill daddy. I am. Uh, I've been more of an Instapot daddy lately, uh, which is which is, I think, some deep failure of personhood. The term Instapot daddy, but you know. I can make, I can make, you know, like a, a bibimbap bowl in 20 minutes. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that does not sound bad at all. Wait till you try it, but. <laughs> <laughs> Knock it after you tried it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Another great slogan. I'm really just firing them off tonight. This is going to be, people are in for a treat. So this is this is the Lincoln and Wells podcast. Yes, yes, this is episode three of Lincoln and Wells. Um, it's pretty. It's it's a going concern by the time you get to episode three. 
Yeah. Yeah. It feels like we've actually created a podcast, not just accidentally had a couple of conversations. Right. By episode three, that's that's about the time that you know, um, Casper and MeUndies start emailing, right? Oh, right, right. I have been thinking that we should do some of our own podcast-friendly ads in the hope that we will attract them to us. Right. Um, I've been listening to just a bunch of Stamps.com ads from different podcasts that I listen to to get a feel for what their copy is. <laughs> you know, Um <laughs> Because definitely they won't send that to us. They just expect us to, to know it. It comes with a paperweight. No, no. Um, that's the opposite. The s- a scale. A scale. It comes with a scale. Scale. A paperweight. If you want. Why would you want to weigh a paperweight? Just to know. <laughs> Maybe you're going to mail it. Maybe you're going to mail it using stamps.com. So you'd need to weigh it. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So they send you some stamps and a, a scale, a little old-timey scale, um, like scales of justice looking. I mean... Is, is, is one side of it a mound of sand and the other is just a... One side a, is a very precisely weighed mound of sand that comes to exactly, you know, 500, 500 grams? Yes, because a gram and a kilogram are a thousand. That's why it's in the name. The metric system's great, but no, um, I hear it's a digital scale. That's my understanding of it from all the, uh, all the podcasts I've listened to that talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's a website. Also, I guess it is. It is stamps.com, not right. Stamps dot someone's house. Yeah. Yeah. They have stamps a dot, small stamps dot horse. Um, stamps dot horse. The, fact that, the fact that you can stamps mount. Dot yes. Yes. <laughs> stamps.xxx um well we have now now that we've lost stamps.com as a possible sponsor i didn't want them anyway i don't no no oh. no i trust i trust the u.s post office and and you know the government generally that's my that's my deal blind faith but, that's yeah blind faith in the government especially especially like the last three years i've been feeling really good about doing that yeah so you know uh, right. So, so, okay. We already said the name of the podcast, so we're way ahead of the game here. We, we are that until much later last time. It's true. It's um, true. So I'm I'm Ben. I'm Tyler. And cool. yeah. that's over with. All that's, right. Yeah. And at some point, uh, Ben inserted the theme song, or is doing it now. I just I look for an opportune moment, so you never quite know when it. And you, I'm also not sure if maybe I'm going to get tired of that theme song and find a different one. Well, Still waiting think, on the rock the rock band to offer us their song for free. Right. Um, I mean, email well, Metallica about you know ride the lightning. Absolutely. Um, Metallica at Metallica dot horse. Dot Metallica, yes. Dot horse. That's that is much better. Um, and you know. Um, I hear immigrant song is uh, is now up for grabs. You know, right. ever since uh, ever since Thor Ragnarok, just anyone can use it now. It's 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 going into the public domain. So perfect, yeah. But yeah. everyone's going to be using it as a thing, right? Right. So we want to <laughs> another immigrant song podcast. Uh, yeah. No, we got to we got to record our own parody version of immigrant song. Hey, did you hear that the Indian Army found a yeti? Uh, uh, that sounds familiar. 
But you... I also feel like if I actually had heard it, <laughs> I would have really remembered it. So let's go with no. The the Indian Army found a Yeti. They announced it on their official Twitter feed. Oh shit! It was very. It was just in a stream of mundane tweets about things, and then they they just posted a tweet that said, "We found a Yeti, and here's a picture of his footprints." Oh, and that was that's... it. And then they moved on to other business. God, I mean, that is the best part of it. The fact that, that it came in the middle of a stream as just a sort of update. That's, well, I mean, I guess we do live in a slightly more magical world now. Where we know that Yetis are real because the, the Indian army told us. Um, yeah, it's like they're, you know, on the brink of war with Pakistan and then kind of take a week off to look for Yetis. They find one confirm it and then pretty much back to business as usual. I mean, I don't know if they, if they struck up some kind of military alliance with, with that Yeti, they then, could be very powerful. They could be very powerful. They could be unstoppable. It's true. It's true. I mean, of all the, of all the, uh, the legendary great apes, uh, I feel like the Yeti is the, is the most powerful. Yeah. Certainly more so than the skunk ape, which is yeah. a local Florida legend. I'm not just making that up. That's a that's a, it's oh, a it's thing. real. It's real. It's it's, it's real. It's just as soon least, as you said Florida, yeah. I knew it was real. Right, right. It's the, and yeah. living in a condo in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the it it eventually evolves into into Bigfoot. If you, oh God, I don't know how things evolve in Pokemon. That was about to be a Pokemon joke, and then I just I realized I you don't can't make. Yeah, you can't make Pokemon jokes around me because poke jokes. That was that was good. Um, that because Portman, that I I don't know anything about it, and I saw mm-hmm. the preview for for Detective Pikachu, and mm-hmm. I was baffled. You weren't it. you weren't charmed by it. I was a little charmed. Okay. Okay. I, against my best judgment, I cannot help but be kind of charmed by Ryan Reynolds every time. I feel, I feel the same way. I feel like that is actually the thing that he does best is charm us against his better judgment. I was going to say, you know, a beautiful, beautiful country of 1.3 billion people that I, I have been to many times and very much uh, appreciate and enjoy and have much affection for. But with those 1.3 billion people plus a Yeti, we're at their mercy. <laughs> we are. It's true. It's very true. Um, I have not. I have not been to India. Um, I. I basically only know it from their military tweets now, which I've. I've just gone on Twitter to to follow the the Indian Army. <laughs> yeah, um, it was from some special. Uh, one thing India is really good at is bureaucracy. Um, mm-hmm. Probably have the British to thank for that. And so it was from some very obscure bureaucratic Twitter account with a very long name, like Second Directorate of Military Adjutant Office. You know, it just goes on and on. Yeah. Uh, so it's easier just to Google Indian Army Yeti and you'll find everything you need to find. That's good. That's good. Uh, but yeah, it's, it would yeah. be good to follow them just in case they drop any more little, right, little nuggets right. like that. Yeah, uh, if if suddenly, you know, they turn up like a couple of skunk apes, 
Um, <laughs> you know, they're going to, they're, they're going to discover that the Yeti was just two skunk apes wearing a trench coat. Oh, you know, one on yeah. top of their shoulders that's with a hat. That's how they get you. I, I feel like it's important that the skunk ape is real because I want newspapers to be able to start using headlines that say Florida ape, you know, tries masculine and eats someone's face. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I, want, I want the skunk ape to be added to the long litany of, like, because it would be a Floridian, first and foremost. Like, you know, amazing cryptid that, you know, defies defies current understandings of biology great also a florida is uh where's swamp thing from is he from florida i want to say he no he must be from florida i was gonna say the pacific northwest but there's not a lot of not a lot of swamps up there they're not huge on swamps it could be louisiana it could be florida i mean that's about it between yeah is there a difference between like like the panhandle and louisiana culturally are we going to really insult our, our one panhandle Florida listener who's rage listening right now for the xenophobia? Yeah, I mean, go ahead, let's, you know, fuck them. Let's yeah, go ahead and yeah, yeah. throw them under the bus. Cause Louisiana is great. And the Florida panhandle sucks. So that's your main <laughs> difference. My academic advisor, uh, who like gave me my doctorate, uh, is from Florida and I both, I'm afraid of insulting her, and also now I'm wondering about the legitimacy of that doctorate. Um, right, it's. <laughs> I mean, we lived in Florida when I was a very little kid. My, oh, yeah, my my dad went to the University of Florida mm-hmm. uh, for his graduate degree, and um, my brother was born there in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. Oh man! But that's not the Panhandle. Right. I've never actually been to the Panhandle. I just know that it sucks. Like it's just a thing that I know in my bones. Right. I feel like, and I the don't pan- need any other information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, get, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but isn't the Panhandle of, of every state terrible? Isn't that like a thing? Like, yeah, I think that's a rule. If you have a a Panhandle, I mean, I should say, you know, I grew up part of my life in the Idaho panhandle. Uh, oh, I guess it does have one. Which yeah. is actually the good part. And it's, oh, it's okay. the frying pan part that sucks. Right. Right. So you grew up in a place that doesn't have, doesn't have like the white supremacist compounds everywhere. Uh, no, that's the panhandle. Oh, I see. I um, see. So yeah, that's, that's the that's, good part of, that's the, okay. That's the good part. <laughs> oh no. That's oh, the good God. part. Oh Yeah. Oh no! No, I remember that happening when I was a kid. Hayden Lake is where the like neo-Nazi compound was. Oh, sorry. There's an actual like story. I just assumed it was like a, a fairly normal occurrence. Yeah. No. I mean, <laughs> that was the the famous one when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. There may be probably are others that I'm not aware of, but um, yeah, there was a really really unfortunate situation where. A couple of people who were African American, <laughs> their car broke down right outside of it, and they oh, didn't know Jesus. what it was. Yeah, and, and like knocked on the door asking for help, and ended up getting shot at. They were fine in the end. I mean, they mm-hmm. they escaped 
and called the police and stuff. And that actually finally gave the government the excuse they've been looking for to um, shut this place down and prosecute these people and all this stuff. Right. Um, but God was that, I mean, it's horrible for those people that they had to go through that. And it was yeah, just mortifyingly embarrassing for all of us who lived there. Yes. That is a really also equally important concern. Um, yeah. <laughs> the main, the main <laughs> no, yes. thing is my feelings about it. Right. Um, right, right. But no, the Idaho panhandle is beautiful and there are a lot of great people there and a few really shitty ones. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, which is stark contrast with all the other panhandles, which are ugly and everyone sucks. Right. Yes. We are really, we are swinging for the fences with getting rid of that, that large contingent of Oklahoma panhandle listeners that, um, that we, uh, Wait, yeah, if anything, if anything, I'm just I'm trying to winnow down our our listenership here because it's getting a little out of audience. control. Yeah, can't yeah, feel all of these inquiries that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. And you know, so many people love listening to an hour and a half podcast in lonely rural areas. Actually, that sounds way more plausible than it did when I started. So <laughs> that's actually Maybe the only thing keeping them. Yeah, totally in touch with the world. So we gotta we gotta start we gotta start hating on those big cities where people yeah. people have short commutes and. Uh, <laughs> this is a podcast like... for for the lonely snowbound, you know, ranch hand. Right, right. In a bunkhouse somewhere with nothing but his his harmonica, and uh, <laughs> you know. A Playboy from 1982. Right, right. That is really, really worried about this Iran Contra stuff, you know, in in a bunch of the articles. So, yeah, and you know, Playboy has great articles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so we're we're here to update him. Uh, All the problems about Iran Contra did not get solved, and they are back. Uh, All the people who fucked that situation up are back in charge. Yep, yep. We. Time is a flat circle, as as they say in the uh, in the Florida Panhandle. Yeah, and also a spiral. Yes, they yes. say the television show Game of Thrones. Right, right. Oh, that was a very good segue. It was almost as good as your segue from the last time. What order should we talk about things in? Because we're going to talk about Game of Thrones first. I feel like that's the thing that we have talked about most. So yeah. people who have not yet read uh, the fifth season. Uh, can uh, can can turn us off if they don't want spoilers. So this time we're going to try to talk about the fifth season in a way that can be comprehended by people who haven't read it, I think. Right, right. I mean, well, that would be... The worst part is I thought that's what we had done the first time, and we definitely did not. So um, we are going to do our best. <laughs> and uh, I, I just have a... A weird little feeling that this podcast is not going to turn out to be a book report podcast because I just don't think that's really going to fly. Um, we could maybe uh, maybe in the future we could recommend books to each other that the that's a good that's read. good yeah 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 and that way we'll be forced to describe it in a way Ooh, that I like that a human I like can that. understand definitely and that could be a good thing. 
but in these early episodes when no one's listening, as opposed to later on when we're doing live shows in mm-hmm. you know, two, three thousand seat auditoriums, we can get away with that. Absolutely, absolutely. So for now, right. though, for now though, it's just it's just your mom and uh, and Brian, Brian Rubenow had told me that he's listening. So, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Hey, so, all right. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Let's talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, controversial episode, uh, was super, super controversial episode. Um, I've I mean, been having by been, controversial. You mean everyone hated it except you. Uh, there is a small cadre of people who enjoyed it quite a bit and they were not the people who I would have expected to enjoy it. Because I find that they are normally the people who who have, you know, the sort of lowest tolerance among my friend group for, you know, racism and sexism and fridging and all the sort of bullshit that was on this last episode. So I was I was surprised by that. Um, Surprising. Yes. What's the what's the Venn diagram overlap here with the the Stark Joy shippers? I uh, like because that's also uh, a small but. The honest truth, Ben, and like, I am embarrassed that you brought this up is that it is a hundred percent overlap. It is, it's, it's a circle. It's not a Venn diagram. Uh, everyone who is part of the Stark Joy fandom, as far as I know, also was someone who liked this episode and no one who is not part of it, well, the opposite. So, so that's where we are. Um, <laughs> just are just, just the couple of weird perverts. Uh, out there shipping shipping a dead man and uh and one of the show's best characters so i don't think we should um i don't think we should talk about last week's episode too much i mean definitely we'll talk about it some Mm -hmm. but let's not belabor it too much because by this point everyone's read all about it and probably argued about it online and stuff yeah Um, and we have also already done that Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I would like to say, um, just, you know, so people don't get the wrong idea, if you somehow don't know us personally, but also find yourself listening to this podcast out in, in, in the panhandle, um, I am in no way condoning the fridging or the casual racism and misogyny of this last episode. My enjoyment of it was in spite of those things and, and injured by those things, but certainly not, uh, you know because of them. So I just, I feel like I'd like to make that very clear. Duly noted. Thank you. I think it'll be interesting to talk about potential directions going forward. Mm -hmm. Yes. Probably very much so more than what happened, but you know, basically the problems most people had with the last episode that I had also, in addition to kind of the, you know, racial politics, gender politics, whatever that, right. Uh, you know, have been present throughout the show history of the show. Yes. Um, just what seem like gaping logical missteps and holes. See, this and, is the, yeah, I don't know that I agree with this read on it, but yet what are, what are they? Well, how is it that Daenerys is cruising along on top of a dragon and can't see a fleet of ships, but they can see her and can with, you know, uncanny accuracy from what seems to be miles away, crossbow one of her dragons and kill him, you know, 
Two the to the answer, chest, one to the head. The answer is mirrorish lenses. Um, they had mirrorish lenses. I, I knew you were going to pull out some nerd shit on me. I know, I know. Also a new sponsor of our show, mirrorish lenses. Uh, no, I mean, okay. I mean, you're so right. So mirrorish lenses see around islands? That is, that, basically, that's my, no, I mean, you're right. That part did not make any, any sense whatsoever, but, um... I mean, I guess for me, I feel like the the some of the like military and tactical logic of the show has has never been a thing that I've paid attention to. Like, it, yeah, it's bad, but it's also a thing that I like. I it, not to like start this episode half an hour in by calling you out on it, but I feel like I've always found those arguments a little bit pedantic. If if they become the focus, right? Like, well, I mostly agree with you. I mostly okay. agree with you because it, it normally doesn't bother me either, but it did bother me in this episode uh-huh. um, because I mean, partly because this time they decided to do that for plot expediency, right? You know, they needed to kill that dragon. Apparently. I mean, they felt they needed to, for whatever reason that is going to be revealed. Um, and so they just, made up a way to do it. It doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. And what you know, if they, the, what were you going to say? Oh, that it's, it's the, I mean, it felt like it was the fulfillment of the promise of last season where Kyburn spends all that time developing the like anti-dragon ballista. And so like, it, it felt like, well, one of the dragons is going to need to be killed by one of these things. And because it wasn't Drogon in season seven, it was going to have to be Rhaegal in season eight or possibly Drogon as well. But like it, it felt like it was, it was, you know, Schrodinger's anti-dragon ballista, right. Or not Schro- uh, uh, Chekhov's anti-dragon <laughs> ballista, right. It was also Schrodinger <laughs> because it did come out of nowhere, but. Um... <laughs> there both was and wasn't an iron fleet there. Right. And right. Uh, yeah. So Schrodinger's fleet and Chekhov's, uh, what did you call it? Ballista. Yeah, a, it's like a, that's it's just like a, the name for a really big crossbow. It's the name for a really shoots big harpoons. I think yeah. it's I think it's a Roman siege weapon. Another part of me, though, mostly knows it from from like real time strategy games. So there's a small chance that I'm just I'm talking about. You probably fans. know it from all those hours I spent at your apartment playing uh, Rome Total War. Oh my god! You right? watched right. Uh, but okay, yeah. So, so yeah. So, yes. Uh, Chekhov's ballista just—it needed to be there. It needed to be fired in order to to mean that that whole plot and all those scenes where Kyburn's developing it and he and Cersei are like cackling over it uh, didn't go to waste. And was it like the right use of it? Probably there would have been a more organic way to work it in. But it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. So much it was like, yes, this has to be a weapon that they can use and. Daenerys does need to know that it actually works, right? Rather than just, oh, it's a big, weird crossbow. Like, this is something with the ability to kill a dragon so that she's more cautious mm-hmm. going forward, I guess. You know what I wish they'd done is um, hidden the ballistas, like, you know, on the on the slopes of Dragonstone, like among mm-hmm. the foliage and stuff. That yeah. would have been completely believable. You know, yeah. they're sort of camouflaged and, uh, you know, the fleets around the other side. Totally. No, I think, I think that's right. And I, and I guess I will concede that a lot of, 
the things that have bothered me about this last episode, they, they didn't bother me when I first watched it, but they have started to nag at me since, have, have just been about how rushed a lot of it feels. Um, yeah. You know, so like, yes, it was, that would have been a cooler plan, but it would have required some pickup shots as opposed to like, you know, just the CGI fleet and some of the same, you know, like cover shots of Euron like salivating and looking turned on while he's at the prow of a ship, right? Which is like, I assume they just film like eight hours of that uh, per season so that they can pepper it in wherever. Okay, so, you know, whatever. Pe- people can have whatever reaction they want to those kinds of things. And it, it definitely can be pedantic to get too mm-hmm. worked up about whether the tactics are realistic and... uh Reminds me of that great line Tyrion had where he said strategy and tactics are the same thing. Um, or, or, or not, right? Where he's like, where he says, like, um, uh, you're thinking of tactics. I'm talking about strategy. My accent was better than Peter Dinklage's just then. I want, I want yeah. to. But yeah. I, whatever. Yeah, that line. Yes, no, absolutely. It's, Where it's you said, so did I remember that line as the exact opposite of what he actually I believe said? so. I think, I think Cersei is talking about something that he redefines as tactics because she calls it strategy. Oh, God. But either way, it's like one of those... You know, sometimes it just yeah. comes home to me that I'm not qualified to talk about this show at all. Sometimes it comes home to me that I, I, I feel like I am, but actually like, I don't, I don't know a lot about, <laughs> I don't know the difference between those things either. <laughs> oh, you God. are definitely qualified to talk about it. People need to go to tour.com and read your shit. Oh, uh, thank you. Put a plug in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, since you've been writing for them, I've gone to tour.com more frequently than I uh-huh. did before, which was never. And uh, they, they do some really good stuff. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, they treat writing and just sort of the art of sci-fi and fantasy with the respect that it deserves. And yeah. It's cool. I've really been enjoying, yeah, looking at that and, and feeling like, oh, there is a place where it's it's neither like pedantically fan service and, you know, um, just sort of like shameless enjoyment without, without thoughtfulness. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with shameless enjoyment without thoughtfulness, but I would prefer like a blog, maybe not do that. Um, uh, you know, without, but also like you said, yeah, taking, taking fantasy and science fiction and, and speculative fiction seriously in a way that makes sense, which is great. Unlike these Game of Thrones showrunners right now who are just, I mean, there's, there's a lot of lazy shortcuts, right? It, it, yeah. That's, I think that's the main issue with this last episode is like, it's, it's all, you know, people arrive right away. Suddenly there's the Iron Fleet is here. Now it's there. Now it's doing this, right? Um, it feels like it's trying to guide us towards specific moments that are necessary for plot development, but they haven't really plotted out exactly how they're going to get there. And especially with last episode, which is like, you know, the anti-penultimate one, right? The third from the last. Uh, There's only two episodes left. Uh, It feels like that could have been about half a season worth of plot with other stuff in there as well, right? Mm -hmm. That they tried to cram in. And it was the first time I really felt like, man, why didn't they just go in for a full season seven and full season eight? It, it, 
when they first announced that, I thought like, okay, they're making the smart decision to do like basically an extended season seven, you know, uh, that's going to go across two years. And now it's like, no, actually they needed, they needed all that time. Yeah. It feels like they're compressing. So they compressed the, uh, showdown with the army of the dead into one Mm -hmm. episode. Right. Which just, I think caught almost everyone by surprise. Yeah. And so then you're kind of like, whoa, okay, that's over. So then the message is actually that wasn't that important. And the petty human struggle for who gets control of these kingdoms really is what matters. Well, so I, I've, I've got some thoughts on that because I feel like on the one hand, that is disappointing to me as a thing, right? Like, I guess spoilers for M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which, you know, but like it had a pro. It's a film that I kind of like that I think most the last hate. ranch hand who was listening yes. to this podcast and <laughs> has a DVD of the village lying around that he's been saving. Right. Cause he just hit stop. Cause yeah, but, it's, but that's, that's one of those things, right. Where like the, the setup is really intriguing. And then the twist is that it's all very mundane and it doesn't quite earn it. So you're mostly going, Oh, that would have been so much cooler if it was the other thing. I, I agree with that, that like the army of the dead, the like actual sort of supernatural and, you know, climate change metaphor, you know, world ending event is the more interesting thing than the petty squabbles. And the petty squabbles are like what keep people from acting on it. But another part of me also feels like what Martin has always been really interested in and what the show I think has done a pretty good job for the most part in doing is like asking the question of like who really should be in charge? Like what does good, like non-abusive power look like? So I feel like that's the thing where I'm just sort of, I'm less disappointed than other people because like we've already had the war against the dead that, you know, where you don't personify the Night King. Now the question of who's going to rule afterwards is pertinent because there's going to be an afterwards to deal with. Yeah, and I don't think that the, the confrontation with the dead is, is actually more interesting than the other one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the sort of power struggle between the North and Cersei and Danny, you know, wherever she falls in that, that's more human to us. And these are people that we know really well and have known for a long time. Whereas the dead, you know, they have no personalities. They're just this this force. And we didn't get any Um, spiders. So, you know, so just burn the whole thing down. But, (laughs) um, but it did feel like one of the messages of the show was humans. People are sort of silly for putting so much stock in these ultimately meaningless and fleeting battles, struggles for power. Right. Uh, when what really matters is the, the time when you can unite Right. As a group of people against something that, you know, is truly evil and that threatens you. Yeah, absolutely. And And so by kind of just dealing with that in one fell swoop, for one thing, it makes Cersei look, it sort of uh, validates Cersei in just sitting it out. Yeah. Letting them deal with it and kind of like, oh, actually, we don't all have to take responsibility as long as just, you know. Really, as as you got Arya, a yeah. couple of special people do, mm-hmm. uh, which is the same message of the uh, 
Avengers movies, by the way, but we don't have to yes. get back into that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I also think that they are, I'm in a weird place right now where I can't tell if the showrunners are, um, are causing are, are are doing problematic things or if they're calling out problematic things by, by displaying them, you know, like, um, you know, Varys has a line in the last episode where he's talking about the, like, you know, patriarchal misogyny of, of Westeros and how people are going to be much more likely to accept John because he's a man. And so maybe he's the easier choice to go with. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, because Varys is saying it and because it's this, like, it's being called out as fundamentally bad for our sensibilities. I would think that that means that in fact, well, John is not the more viable option. We should do the better thing. This is, you know, we are teasing this as a way of ultimately getting rid of it. But I'm also kind of worried that the show is, is not doing those things, right? Like I, I am worried that John will end up on the iron throne. I very much don't think he will. And, and I will continue to think that until the last seconds of the last episode, but I'm, you know, there's just this this slight fear of like, oh, are they gonna set it up so that a dude comes in and rescues everyone? Yeah, this last episode was the first time I've really sort of consciously thought to myself, like, they might fuck this up. Yeah. Yeah. This might end in a way that sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> did you see that interview somebody did with Kit Harrington where they asked him to describe the series finale in one word? Oh God! What did he say? He said disappointing. Oh, Jesus Christ! Yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, "Dude, you're not supposed to be that honest on a press tour." Oh my like God! That. Oh my God! But that said, that said, Kit Harrington is also the person who, um, in one of the like featurettes, where like they were doing a retrospective of all of the time, all the years spent working on the show. They asked him who his uh, who the favorite person you know who's his favorite actor to work with, and he said Rose Leslie, who he's you know married to now, and he met on the show, and they're dating, right? Dating and now they're married. And in talking about it, he talked about her professionalism and never once mentioned that they're dating. So like, there's also like an unreliability to Kit Harrington that just sort of feels like it's yeah, okay there's there's something uh, there's something very kind of. Sweet and simple about him, almost. Yeah. Did you ever see the the like HBO um, film with him and Andy Samberg? Oh yeah, the one about tennis. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, it was. But I feel like Kit Harrington's character in that, the sort of like, you know, um, sweet, very frightened man, you know, Buster Bluth character, is is maybe the closest to Kit (laughs) Harrington that we've seen. Yeah, they were kind of like okay. You don't have to be Jon Snow this time. You can just be yourself. Right, right. So start the tears now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so yeah, no, I'm I'm worried about them sticking the landing. I think ultimately the way they've been setting up Danny to be the villain this season feels like they're going to have to reverse it. Like, it, otherwise, it's just, it's too much villainy too fast if there wasn't going to be, like, a redemption arc for her of she makes the right decision in the end and she gets it. But, 
they've only got like three more hours in two more episodes to do that. You yeah, know? I think like, it's going to be hard to get the pacing back on track. Yeah. Um, this last episode was just so just felt off kilter in that way. Yeah. Like so much going by so fast, but there still, still are, I mean, some fun wild card plot lines out there. You yes. got Ariane and the hound back on the yes. road. hundred percent. And that's, I mean, those scenes are probably the best scenes in the, the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Jamie who, I mean, yeah, I feel so, you know, uh, people have complained, and I think rightly so, about the speed with which their relationship, Jamie and Brienne's relationship, became, like, very gender normative. And, and I agree that that was, that was weird. But I also sort of feel like those a lot of people who are complaining about that, I'm also seeing say, like, and he's just going to go back to Cersei. And it's like, no, that's not the plot, right? Like, he is, he's going to do something. And we don't know what it is. But it's not just going to go back and fight for Cersei and, and yeah, defender, you know. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I think for me, it's just the speed with which their relationship begins and then ends. Uh-huh. That's jarring and just not quite. I hesitate to say it's unearned. Uh-huh. Yeah, that last scene with him sort of riding off in the middle of the night and yeah. her crying and everything because it's not as if the groundwork hasn't been laid for something like that. Right. But it felt like it came and then went so fast. I mean, and yeah, Jamie seems to have changed so much and to want such different things. Mm -hmm. It was hard for me to buy him giving that speech, but you're right. And it's a little bit of an ambiguous speech. We don't know exactly what he means by it. Right. Uh, So there's still some, some room for them to play with that. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a weird show often where I think like they all, they oftentimes like end up doing the right thing by their characters, but they have such a crazy vision of how they get there that I don't trust it. Like there was a whole thing um, last season where, you know, it was very ambiguous whether or not Arya and Sansa distrusted each other because Littlefinger was playing them off against each other, or whether the entirety of that plot was the two of them in cahoots trying to pull one over on Littlefinger. And the way, the way it was filmed, it could be either way. And some of the interviews with them really feel like it was the former rather than the latter, which seems to me like the much less interesting plot and the much less believable plot. And so even though it does end with like Sansa and Arya teaming up to get rid of Littlefinger, which was very satisfying, it's like, oh, but you you went about it in such a strange way that it kind of undercut what I wanted out of that moment. And I'm I'm horrified and worried that like I don't think they're gonna screw up, you know, Jamie and Brienne in the end as characters. I think they're going to be true to themselves in, in good and emotional ways. And obviously Jamie's definitely gonna die, but I do think that, like, there's a chance that, you know, you listen to the interview with them and they're like, oh, yeah, Jamie just, he went totally back. And then at the last minute, he changed, you know, which right. seems very bad to me. Yeah, anyway, yeah. 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 Um, and I'm trying to think, like, there's, there's, the episode had a number of, like, goodbyes to characters or things that felt like goodbyes that also felt very unsatisfying. Uh, I mean, everyone's upset about Ghost not being pet because it wasn't in the budget. 
Um, <laughs> but I'm more distressed by like the Sam goodbye in that episode. Like, you know, um, Tormund Giants Bane kind of makes sense, right? They tied off the Brienne plot. He got to live, which was fun and surprising. And what else was he going to do except die in the next battle, you know? Um, yeah. But with Sam, there was sort of a weird thing where that also felt like, I mean, I'm hoping it's like this is John saying goodbye to them, hopefully because John's going to die down south. But, um, you know, and not like the show saying goodbye to them. But there's also not a lot of time left. And it's like, well, wait. So Sam's whole plot is that he's very, very smart and thoughtful and sensitive and this sort of model of non-normative masculinity. And the thing the show's going to end on is, oh, he, he got his, his girlfriend pregnant. And that's that's the reward at the end for everything being good. You know, like... They didn't, you know, they didn't deal with, they set up dealing with his family, right, and and mourning the loss of his family. They they set up his being the sort of, like, human part of Bran's, you know, weird, you know, oversoul memory thing, right? Uh, and then, no, the end is just like, yeah, he's going to hang out at Winterfell and, you know, have a family. And while it's not, like, a terrible ending for a character, it, it also doesn't feel like it actually ties off any of the things that are interesting about Sam. And th- that's just not enough. No, it, it's not. You know? It's not, yeah. John and Sam are kind of this ultimate odd couple, perfect team. It's, they're a lot like us, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. You're, the, the, you're the, the emotional doer. Um, <laughs> fairly stupid, right? Uh, right. But but very honorable. Very very honorable. Yeah. And and I'm 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 the fat guy who likes books and women with fucked up teeth. I hate books. God, I love uh, fucked up teeth so much. Sorry, I just I'm I do want to take a second to just say like, Gilly's teeth are real bad, and I'm real into them. Oh man, you know what? I've been going through a dentistry nightmare for the last oh, like month and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Had to have multiple things done to my teeth. Had a root canal. I've still got teeth hurting. It sucks. That does suck, man. Yeah. And I know you when you spent like four or five years with your jaw wired shut. So yeah, well I honestly, I think this is related to that. Oh no. This is, yeah. Oh, that's real rough. Just to clarify, I did not spend four or five years with my, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a classic Tyler exaggeration just for, for the ranch hands out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Your rubes. I I spent, (laughs) yeah, they'll believe anything. (laughs) I did spend six weeks with my jaw wired shut and it was as much fun as it sounds like. God, it was only six weeks. It, I really actually was thinking, oh, it's six months. So I'm going to say four or five years. But that also sounds crazy. Um, <laughs> six weeks does sound like the right amount of time to take something to heal. But also that felt like forever. Yeah. If you think it felt like forever to you. Yeah. I was at home watching Ayrton Senna documentaries and getting really sad. Yeah. Although Ayrton I think you- Senna died. Yeah. You didn't know it at the start of the documentary. I didn't. So. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I, you played like every Assassin's Creed game during that same period, right? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 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 I read every plaque in, in every Assassin's Creed game. 
Oh, thank God. Those Quebecois put them there for a reason. Uh, the Quebe- Quebecois studio made some of the Assassin's Creed games, and I... I, oh, I thought maybe they'd, they'd made a game set in Montreal. Oh man, just that's just a really good. nice one about going out to to a you know a bakery, maybe a right. nightclub. I um, joining a Jamaican mafia. Right. Uh, yes, having having some, but not not as much poutine as you might have in like an Alberta. Actually, I have no idea where poutine is distributed. I have only ever been to Vancouver, so um, <laughs> my Canadian knowledge is not great. Does Canada have any panhandles? You think uh, we panhandle listeners? I mean, like it's Saskatchewan sort of, sounds like it's just got to have a panhandle. Yeah, like and maybe Prince Edward Island is like a panhandle that's rusted off. Yeah, and just floated away into yeah. the sea and. There's there's a lighthouse keeper out there somewhere. <laughs> God, I hope he sounds like a great listener. I hope we should we, we can get him on. Then we've made it. Um, watches uh, watches Game of Thrones um, using lantern slides. Yes, yes. I mean, you, know, you say that, and a part of me is like, I'd do that. I'd go to like a like you know out out here in Los Angeles you know where we have we have the the height of television and film culture i, I go to like the hollywood uh, forever cemetery and, and watch game of thrones on lantern slides you know projected on on D- douglas fairbanks tomb oh yeah. god right yes yeah that'd be amazing with uh with like silent movie you know placards absolutely. inserted absolutely and Werner herzog <laughs> so, you know nothing john snow yes and uh, yes. I did look it up. You were right about the strategies and tactics thing, which oh. is, it's weird that my brain invented a, a piece of dialogue that it liked better. Well, <laughs> I mean, decided that was reality. Here's the, here's the great part about being a writer, especially a writer of occasionally historical fiction. You can just write that line in somewhere. And because no one listens to this podcast, it won't sound derivative. Oh, you're right. It's true. It's true. And because, my novels never get published. It will <laughs> really not sound derivative. Well, well, you can ride my my coattails when I finally finally turn the tables at Tor and say, like, this whole time I've just been trying to publish a novel. So <laughs> they're going to be like, yeah, you and everyone else who writes for us. Right, right. Oh God, that's true. Oh, oh, things got way too real in that second. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Oh, no, no, it's okay. It's good. I should confront reality. Just maybe not for our like uh, thousands of listeners out there. Um, no, but I, you know, I actually, I do believe in you. And oh. I mean, I don't sound like I mean that, but I do mean that. Well, you, you have, you do have resting non-believers voice. So <laughs> resting, <it's>... non- <laughs> resting <laughs> skeptic shit talk voice yes um, yes and, and i, I actually do believe in myself as well yeah 100 percent. you you are a good writer man and you're going to get one of those novels published someday so literary agents what i'm working on now it could totally be published if i ever finished it see that's the main that's great that's great it is great um, i, I yeah. just need to not have to do so much at work so that i can write while i'm at work that's good. That's important. That's oh, important. God, I really shouldn't have said that. I well, look, look, I am <laughs> as someone who is currently um, 
Now, wait, can I say fun employed without it sounding like a matter of insane privilege? Because it's... I don't think so. Okay, so I'm currently unemployed. <laughs> and it's a little fun. No, it's, it's, it's harrowing. But um, uh, you'd think that that would lead to plenty of writing time for me. And in fact, what it's led to is... Well, I, you know, I cleaned my whole house today. Um, yeah, no, being unemployed is not... It's not good for anything and definitely not the creative. Right. Um, right. Yes. So now, now that we've, we've gotten too real for our listeners, um, are there any other things about game of Thrones? We haven't yet. Said? I do think we got the ranch hands back cause they know what we we're did. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They understand. They, they understand know what it's it. like to be out there on the range without a, without two nickels to rub together. Right. Two Buffalo Times nickels. Is hard. <laughs> Times is hard. Fish ain't biting. <laughs> when are they going to bring back the Kresk Beckler report? Oh, like it's really, it was the apotheosis of comedy. Absolutely. And I'm, possibly all art. Right. I mean, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried that the actor that plays Joe Kresk Beckler is dead at this point. Ooh. It's been like 10 years. I haven't yeah. looked it up. I probably won't just because. It's also hope. possible that you and I were the only people who watched those and liked them. That's true. That's true. Although we did show them to a lot of people at like parties we used to throw. And yeah. And then, you know, the party kind of end. Right. But yeah, you know, if you are, if, if you are listening to this in an era where the internet still exists, I don't know why I started it like that. That was a wild way to start it. Um, go. I think go. you were talking to the people <laughs> The people we now imagine are our listeners who live in yes, just sort of dislocated from time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's professions to... that don't exist anymore. <laughs> they're all they're all travel agents, door to door salesmen, oh. lighthouse keepers. Yeah, boys. And, oh. But yeah, go go to the Onion and uh, and watch all the old Jode Kressbeckler. Uh, videos um he's like a it's like a fox news talking head show but he's an old-timey prospector and it's it's basically the best thing that's ever been made pretty much the um, best thing it may part of the problem may be that it's not satire anymore like bro, much of the that is true <laughs> it may be that that guy is just actually a fox news commentator now god, I, god I yeah know, but it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. Oh no. Oh. Should we talk about the fifth season? Yeah, let's talk about the fifth season. So okay. yeah, let's let's okay. So the fifth season, for those of you who haven't read it and who were bewildered last time, it's a novel by N.K. Jemison. Uh it came out um uh, what, like four or five years ago? It's the first Yeah, I want to say twenty fifteen or twenty fourteen. Okay. I'm willing to believe that. Um it's not, it's not, That's not we don't need to do the whole library of Congress page though. That's I true. think That's we, true. we don't need the ISBN number or anything. We can, Oh, uh, I called up the, both that. the 10 and the 13 digit ISBN number <laughs> just now in case. Anyway, it is a fantasy novel set in, um, a, uh, an incredibly geologically unstable world where societies regularly fall apart during what they colloquially refer to as a fifth season where just terrible, terrible things happen and cities crumble and there's a period of like decades or possibly centuries 
uh, afterwards where civilization struggles to rebuild. So that's the, that's the setting for it. Yeah. And there's only, there's only one continent Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think it's giving away too much to say by the end, you understand this is a far future earth. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, With the, with the whole, the moon thing, Um, the moon thing and their references to, you know, uh, fossil fuel, excessive right. fossil fuel consumption that led to like massive catastrophe and, you know, eventually te- the tectonics of the world shifted and it kind of went back to a Pangea situation. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's, uh, um, I guess we're going to have to talk about, I was about to say, I like, want to reveal spoilers, but otherwise what, what are we going to talk about? Yeah. I don't, um, yeah. If we don't, rev- well, okay. We can still say there are, Three storylines, three different women, each mm-hmm. of whom are something called an origin, which is kind of a a magician or a, a wizard of of some sort, but specifically their powers draw from the earth mm-hmm. and are re- related to the earth. They can um, control to some extent the uh, tectonic activity. Right. And manipulate it. And they can also uh, create these sort of balls of energy that can kill people or destroy yeah. things. Uh, it's, and it's all sort of rooted in physics, right, where they're, where they're shifting energy around to move things. When they kill people, they, they freeze them by, like, taking all the kinetic energy out of an area. Um, they're, uh, they're pariahs, right, uh, who, are, who are looked on with, like, suspicion and disdain and also completely essential to the functioning of the world because the world is so geologically unstable. Yes. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. Um, I, I gotta say, I, the, the biggest twist in this I kind of saw coming where you know, all three of the women who are in it are in fact the same woman. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I, yeah, I guess that fairly early on. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting way to do it. Um, you know, like it's very clear throughout the novel that, um, they're taking place at, at least two different time periods, possibly three. Uh, so, you know, you, because like, you know, one of the stories, of, of Esun, right, who is the, the, um, the last incarnation of, of this woman, um, is, uh, is taking place during a fifth season, during an apocalypse, and the other two, like, there isn't an apocalypse going on, you already know, like, well, this can't be happening contemporaneously, but, um, you know, they do a pretty good job, or she does a pretty good job of, like, making it at least feel like it is plausibly separate stories for a while. Um, it's, I guess three quarters of the way through they, they start like, you know, she starts like showing her hand saying, in fact, this is all the same character. Yeah. And I don't, it's difficult to compare it with, you know, a, a different book that doesn't exist, but mm-hmm. it raises the question, what does that add? What is you, you yeah. not knowing, but kind of guessing fairly early on. Mm-hmm. that these are all the same story. Uh, you know, what does that add to the story? And, and could you have done more and made it more interesting if you did know from the beginning that this was all the same person and therefore everything you know about them kind of adds to the other narratives and right. forms those narratives. Whereas if you don't know, it's not really able to inform 
the character from one narrative to the next. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I, I think that that is, that that is true, but I think that something that's really interesting about it is like, um, like, yes, it is, it is maybe not the best move in terms of getting your central character to feel cohesive, right? Cause you've literally split them apart and made it so that you can't really reflect on, on how they are. Like you said, um, the same person with the, with the same history, but, um, but it does, I think, make the immediacy of the timeline come through. Like, I'm not sure that I would have read a sort of like Bildungsroman version of this, where we start out with, um, you know, her childhood and her time at the Fulcrum and then move on to her time as, you know, an agent of the Fulcrum and then an apostate and then moved into, you know, like if it had been presented in a linear fashion, I think it wouldn't have been as gripping or exciting as like beginning with and continuing to work through the apocalypse, even as you start to get a sense that like maybe Jemison hasn't been totally honest or reliable in what character is who and, you know, what order these narratives are happening in, et cetera. Yeah, that's fair. We should say the fulcrum for the people. Oh, that yeah. read it, right. Is, uh, yes. It's, it's the Hogwarts. It's the wizard yes. school. Um, What's interesting about this book, uh, one of many things that's interesting about it, is um, it's a very antagonistic book. It's a very Mm -hmm. cynical, well, maybe cynical is not the right word. It's very very grim. It's a Mm -hmm. very, um, I would say, negative outlook. And almost every relationship in the book is antagonistic. At least some of them grow more, you know, I would say grudgingly friendly as I go on. Um, and so when I say that this, this place, the fulcrum is like Hogwarts, it's like Hogwarts, but, but horrible, like, Mm -hmm. like Hogwarts as a military school where you're there to kind of get whipped into shape and be turned into, um, a, a cog in the machinery of the state. Right, right. And where the, you know, the penalty for not conforming is death. Or, right. or a fate worse than death is to have your, your, your uh, you know, being turned into literal machinery, <laughs> using your, your uh, abilities as, a, um, as an origin to, uh, you know, to benefit the state, but with your, your mind and your personality completely destroyed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, you know, it's, I mean, and I think, I think you're right. It's really cynical. The sort of like, um, idyllic interlude that, um, that Essen has in the middle, uh, in the middle storyline, uh, when she is first, uh, a fulcrum investigator and then an apostate who has left the fulcrum, the way that they present that is sort of as like, like, what does the good life look like? It basically looks like, um, sort of living hand to mouth in a completely impoverished society where you have, you know, the comfort of, of sex, of family, of friendship, but living under the pall that it could all be taken at any moment. Like that's, yeah, it's that's kind the of closest. A, yeah. It's kind of a survivalist cult that she yeah. finds yeah. on this Island be- because of the, the single continent thing and the total instability of 
uh, the geography of this world. The ocean is viewed with like complete fear and suspicion and ignorance and anything out there like islands just, you know, kind of horrific to the mind of anyone who lives in the, on this continent. Right. Yeah. So, so she finds shelter out there. Um, but in order to do that, she basically has to, yeah, live this subsistence life among people who are, um, you know, exiles and freaks and, uh, other castoffs of society. Right. And, and I find sort of interesting there is like it, even the sort of like good relationship in there, um, is this, you know, it's like a, you know, a polyamorous triad, right. With, um, our, our main character and this, you know, pirate King origin who is, a you know, sort of, um, fun loving and bombastic and obviously doomed. And, um, and her old, uh, you know, partner at the fulcrum who is, a a gay man that has been sort of forced by the fulcrum to reproduce with her. So they have, a, you know, sexual relationships that are, you know, um, that are essentially like a, a kind of, you know, like stud farming. It's really, yeah, that's really, it's very it's yeah. chilling to read about because yeah. both of them just absolutely despise it. Right. And, and especially chilling because it's, it's not presented as, as assault, right. It's just two people who, who at that point in time hate one another and hate the idea of sleeping with one another, um, without prompting from the state in the moment going, well, we have to do this or they'll kill us at some point. It's, you know, it's a very, yeah, it's, it's two non-consenting adults, right. Non-consensually having sex with each other. Right. So sort of both being assaulted by the state. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so not the, each the, other. Right. And the, and the triad that sort of forms of the, the three of them who are both, I mean, linked because they are, you know, she does have a child with this person. Um, the child also dies. It's all, it's all pretty grim. Um, but, um, but you know, they're, they're both in love with this pirate King who is, who is equally interested in the two of them. Like even that, like that is the sort of relationship that works the best and feels like it is stable and good and right. And it is also based on, you know, uh, as much as like the two of them both love this, this pirate King character, this third character, most of the time spent with them is about how their relationship has thawed into something civil rather than, you know, actually blossomed into a kind of platonic love. <laughs> yeah. And I'm impressed with how uncompromising this book is on that point. Yeah. You know, she really is not interested in warming your heart at all. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's no heart of gold. She's just not going to go there. Right. She right. doesn't care if it's going to be more crowd pleasing. And actually I saw a tweet from her. I wasn't mm -hmm. even looking for it. It just showed up in my, um, feed and she, uh, she sort of prefaced it by saying that it was a drug fueled rant. She didn't specify which drugs, <laughs> um, but basically saying, that she was pissed off about um, people who sort of insisted that that we should be writing like utopian stories, mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm not aware of who's insisting this. She was clearly responding to some discussion going on in in her 
sphere of people, and I wasn't aware of it. Tor had an article uh, a couple days ago, or like a week ago, about like futuristic novels don't have to be dystopian, but I, I didn't actually read that one, and I don't know if that was also maybe in response to the same, mm-hmm. you know, inciting yeah. incident, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. it could have been. It, anyway, her, her rant was basically about how for her and a lot of people who feel similarly to her, utopian stories are not what they need. They need dystopian stories and they need, you know, basically upsetting stories in order to find some catharsis and to tell the stories that are important to them. Yeah. To them. And, and I think actually it's sort of worth mentioning here that like, you know, um, the the world that Jemison has created is one that is you know almost entirely populated by people of color, right? It's a it's a very very um, non Western uh, vision of fantasy and science fiction, and you know even I mean you know so even if it's a if it's a far future Earth or just you know uh, a planet with a past very similar to Earth's, although the, the former seems more likely. Um, it's not as though there's like hints of, you know, non-white culture that survived. It's just about, you know, uh, skin color, which she, which she describes uh, in great detail. And I sort of like the idea that um, I think there is a move to do a sort of utopian vision of what uh, non uh, what the non-white world might look like, uh, simply as a like you know uh, ameliorative to well. Europeans fucked up the entire world, right? The things they brought to the world were horrifying and we are now all living with the consequences of that world that you might want to create like um, an Afrofuturist world where things are great, you know, like say in Black Panther, right? Like the the threat in that film uh, is coming from America, essentially, right? Like Wakanda itself is a great place. I like that Jemison has created a world where it is non-white in a way that feels really good, but it is also not, like you say, pulling any punches on just how hideous all humanity is going to be with any power. Or there's there's very little relatively like racial discrimination within it. It's It's not just the sort of reverse of with a dominant, you know, a group of dark-skinned people, light-skinned people are are enslaved, right? I mean, they are they're thought of as sort of weirdos and not as attractive, but she doesn't do the sort of like, you know, complete reversal of this narrative. She just does this thing of like, but, you know, when times are hard, um people are are vicious and brutal and the state will find ways to enslave you even when um like colorism is not at the center of why you're being enslaved. Yeah, I was gonna say if there's a slavery parallel here, it's it's the origins versus the, you know, just people who are part of there. There are various casts in this world, right. and pretty much all of the casts are acceptable. Obviously, there's a hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, but the origins are almost like kind of the untouchable cast, um, right. and they they are the ones who they're rejected from society, but their labor is essential. Mm-hmm. society you know their their breeding their education is all controlled they're not allowed to live outside of you know this certain system that's been set up for them right. so that 
dynamic is still there, but it's not in the, the, the very first place you would think to look for it. Right. Right. Um, and, and I also really like, um, in addition to that, the sort of, um, the strangeness of like the essential, like you said, the essential labor that is, that is made, you know, to be bad and, and sort of pariah like part of the dynamic that she sets up is one that I've, I've seen in other fantasy novels and films and, and video games and things like that, that I think is really tricky and that she does really well, which is like, what do you do when like the stories about people being dangerous aren't just bad racial stereotypes, the analog in our world for racism or sexism or, or any other kind of, um, uh, uh, discrimination usually, you know, comes with this caveat of that's all made up because of some sort of need for an other. And in this world, like, no, it, it, they actually, you know, origins can kill you, right? Um, origins can kill you instantly and catastrophically and horrifyingly. And so what do you do with, um, you know, it is, she never advocates for, for the, for their enslavement, obviously. Right. Like that's still portrayed as rightly horrific and awful, but there's just enough of a like open question of what is a society going to do with elements this dangerous who are dangerous by virtue of what they are, not by virtue of what they believe. All right. So final thoughts on this book. Yeah. Um, for me, I mean, I don't think I'm going to read the rest of the trilogy to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel okay saying that now because we've said a lot of nice things about it and all of those things are <laughs> right. true and I mean them. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I, I didn't connect with this book in a mm -hmm. way that really made me want to read the rest of it. And um, I think, you know, that, that saying, if you run into assholes all day long, you're the asshole. Right. Or that one. Um, I think that might be me and the fantasy genre. <laughs> um, because I sort of have this idea that I like fantasy, mm -hmm. but then the more books I read, the more I'm not sure about that. So like everybody, I loved Lord of the Rings as like a teenager and I think my, it might just be a matter of taste and mm -hmm. then like I, my platonic ideal of a fantasy novel is something like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, mm -hmm. you know, something really Baroque that really luxuriates in this, in, in language and story and this kind of elaborate world. And, you know, the fifth season is just not that kind of book. Yeah. Different kind of book. Uh, and I would, I mean, I think I am going to read the rest of it. I, but I, you know, and, and I did enjoy it, but I also think there was a spareness to this that I was surprised by. Um, and, a, and a nastiness to it. It is a, like you said, right. It is a, it is a nasty world that, uh, that Jemison paints and not that I need my stories to be edifying, right. Or to contain good people, or to contain situations that aren't desperate, you know? Um, but, but it is a, a kind of endless parade of, of human misery without, without 
a clear way out. Um, yeah, and, and when you think about it, I mean, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is quite a nasty book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite unpleasant characters in a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, it's different, but to people. Yeah. horrible things happen to people. You have a, a world torn apart by war. It's a real war. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's purely a stylistic difference and like a stylistic preference. I mean, you and I both like the Victorian aesthetic, mm-hmm. we both like the, uh, you know, Dickensian lengthy, elaborate, digressive yes. style. Panoply. And, mm-hmm. and I, I like a lot of books also that don't have that style, but I think it's fair to say that I gravitate toward that in a lot of cases. Right. Um, so yeah. we are. I don't know. No, 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 no. I, I, like, like I said, I think I will go and read the others. Um, I'm intrigued enough, but I don't, you know, like people have been recommending it to me for years and years and maybe it was the hype of that, but a part of me sort of felt like, oh, you know, it's, it's not, um, it is different than I thought it would be. It is not a sumptuous fantasy that luxuriates in its world building. Like it's wonderful world building, no question, but it, the world building definitely is in service of telling a story about, about the sort of horror of man's inhumanity to man and, uh, and doing so in a style that is very sparse, very, very spare, very direct, um, and very implicating. I think that was the last thing about it that made me uncomfortable, uh, reading it is the like, um, because there is one of the one of the narrations in, is in second person and also because it is a world that is so familiar in the ways that it is horrible uh even if the world itself is not familiar uh there is a sort of like growing feeling of like oh god yeah i am a part of this and it's bad um yeah and not... i think that's that's very much her project and mm-hmm. so you've just given her a great compliment by yes. you know the fact that you felt that way and that's pro- exactly how she wants you to feel. And right, right. you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in the idea that it's not a valid criticism of, of a book to say that it's not the book you wanted it to be. Right. No, that's your own yeah. problem as a reader. And yeah, I know you believe that too. And so I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing this book for not being the kind of book that I like. Yeah. I feel like we're kind of on the same page with just slightly different tolerance levels for, certain kinds of narratives. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Someday I'll read a Cormac McCarthy novel. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever read a Cormac McCarthy novel again. You know, that's like, uh, he's one of those writers that like, there's a period in your life mm-hmm. where yeah. that yeah. hits home. And then you're kind of like, mm, maybe I don't need any more of that. So I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't go back and test out like, uh, some Ayn Rand, just be like, I didn't read her when I was 14. <laughs> right. Yeah. You've got to be mature for a yeah, client yeah. and really absorb. You've got to be mature enough to not, to not let her take over the entire rest of your life, Paul. Yeah. Oh, God, we've talked for an hour and a half already. I think I might cut out like the first 15 minutes, though, so sure. it could be okay. Because yeah. um, we've still got this Caravaggio novel from Italy to talk about, and I'm, I'm intrigued. Well, it is a Caravaggio graphic novel. Um, is it from Italy? It is from Italy. Yes. My, my sister lives in Rome and my, my mother and stepfather were just out there visiting and 
it was also my birthday last weekend, so they they bought me this for my birthday, and, and when they came back, it was this. Yeah, it's a graphic novel called uh, Caravaggio. Let me let me grab it. The lighthouse keeper is like nothing more than rifling through books or hearing others rifle through books. Uh, so yeah, because they called, can't have any because the the horrible salt sea destroys them. It is yes. <laughs> it's called simply Caravaggio, and it is by Milo Manara. Um, and, um, uh, so one thing that this has a hundred percent, um, sorry, um, Milo, Milo Marinara, Milo Marinara. Uh, yes, absolutely. One thing that this has brought home to me is that my Italian has really slipped in the last, uh, oh fuck, 15 years since I lived in Italy. Jesus Christ. So this book Um, is in Italian? It is in Italian. Uh, which means I am very slowly getting through it. Um, but I have, you know, in fact, um, you know, paged through all of it. And just to be clear, it is, it is, the, it is the story of a portion of the life of Caravaggio, um, the, uh, the Baroque um, uh, painter, um, who, uh, and every single page of this, I cannot, I've yet to find a page where uh, there is not like an act of grotesque violence or, um, or just a lot of nudity. As my mom told me when she got it for me, like, your sister thinks you'd like this, but this is very racy. Um, <laughs> so it is, sounds like a scrupulously factual depiction of the life of Caravaggio. I mean, that's the thing is, It yes. was just sword fights and gay sex. That's all. I mean, I guess this has a lot more straight sex. So maybe in that way, it's uh, doing a little straight washing. But, um, you know, it is very wonderfully illustrated. Uh, is it done in the style of Caravaggio? Um, it is done. There, There is more like tenebristic chiaroscuro in here. But it is not like Caravaggio. Uh, it's certainly not... No offense to uh, Milo Manara, but Signore Manara is no Caravaggio. So there's, there's, you know, uh, (laughs) it's like midway. It's like someone doing a comic book who wanted to take on some Caravaggioistic ideas and sort of like visual cues. Uh, What was the name of... um... Caravaggio's rival. He had like a sort of a Salieri, oh, oh, right. no, uh, a guy who was kind of a hack, but who was very popular. Right. I don't. Oh no. I'm, I'm in a blank. Uh, I can only think of Bernini right now, but he is a sculptor and an architect. Uh, like, yeah. And just to be clear, several pages where uh, a naked woman is, is stabbed with a sword, um, which again, feels real accurate. Like, I was talking to my dad today, uh, my dad is an artist, and uh, talking to him today about, like, you know, he saw the Caravaggio uh, book and was like, oh, so, you know, he's, like, one of the worst artists in history. And I was like, yeah, there have been some, I mean, worst in terms of being a person. He's a a brilliant artist. Uh, And I was saying, like, you know, there have been some pretty terrible artists out there. You know, Degas, pretty bad. Uh, Picasso's, you know, a monster. But, like, in the end... Caravaggio was bad in the same ways as Degas and Picasso and also murdered a lot of people. Like <laughs> there's very few, very famous artists out there where you're, you can also say like, and his kill count. <laughs> I think he's only, I think he's only known to have actually murdered one or two. Uh, Fair enough. Attempted, attempted 
definitely the numbers are higher. He got into a lot of sword fights and he was quite good at it. He was like an actual good sword fighter. Right. Uh, which is not something you could say about many artists in history, I think. It's true. It's true. It's They, they don't typically go together. I mean, more artists should wear swords. Yes. Honestly. In the course of this graphic novel, he does paint uh, Judith and Holofernes. Um, okay. So, which, oh my God, Ben, I don't, I, I, this came up on the internet a bunch and my, my partner pointed it out to me and we've been like, it's been an in-joke the whole last uh, week, but have you seen the bottle of um, like uh, pasta sauce that has uh, Judith from Judith and Holofernes on it as like the little like, you know, Italian art piece in the center of the label? No. Yeah, it's it's um, it's from uh, I think Artemisia Gentileschi's Judith and Holofernes, not Caravaggio's, but um, it's just and it's like an inset. It's just a picture of Judith, and so it's like, oh, look at this like demure Italian lady, you know, on on this very authentic, you know, uh, mas authentico bottle of. Okay, I'm I'm googling this Judith pasta sauce. Yeah, yeah, uh, that'll get you Grandma Judith's recipe. Oh right. God. So yeah. that is the Caravaggio one. Oh, it is the, it's the Caravaggio one. sure. Okay. Yeah. And so like... Middle Earth like, Organics. <laughs> so for those it's of you... Not, that's not a name for a pasta company. It is definitely not. That Real. is the name for a company that secretly like cuts down trees in the rainforest and releases Tim Curry from one. But yeah, so this pasta sauce, uh, for those of you who are not art history majors, I know that there's like a, a large number of you up on the panhandles of, the, of America, but um, uh, Judith and Holofernes is, uh, uh, several artists have done it, but you know, it is a biblical story in which Judith uh, cuts off the head of Holofernes. Uh, and so it's an inset of a painting where it looks like a very demure Italian lady um, in a sort of like Baroque, uh, late Renaissance, early Baroque style. But uh, it is 100% like if you zoom out, like, yeah, she's in the middle of sawing off a man's head, uh, which is not what you her, want for your red sauce, certainly. Her expression is so, um, it's sort of serious, but unbothered. Yeah. And she looks like someone, you know, maybe trying to see if a steak is done. Right. Yes. Which, you know, not super far off. Uh, but... But yeah, um, I think this is actually like a longer rant that I have in general about like books and I guess now pasta sauces should not have just random images on their covers slash labels without understanding the historical, you know, like it doesn't take that long to research where the image comes from and what it means if you're designing it, right? Like you just go on the Wikipedia page and go like, does the rest of this, this image have like a, a gory beheading in it maybe it's not for our pasta sauce was this was is this like a painting from 1745 maybe it shouldn't go on our 1891 edition of the picture of dorian gray just you know i guess that last one made me sound like a real snob but uh but just you know know your art people know it well enough that you don't make this mistake what i think is if you can use a detail from a Caravaggio on your shitty pasta sauce label, we should be able to use 30 seconds of immigrant song. Yes. At the beginning and end of our podcast. That's the new rule. If we just say thank you to Led Zeppelin and Robert Plant 
and all the for fellas. The use of our theme song. For the use of our theme song. song <laughs> off of Led Zeppelin 3. I. You're asking the wrong man. If it wasn't on the Mamma Mia soundtrack, you don't know it. Um, yeah, but no, yeah, thank, this has been a great um, four or five hours of podcast that we've done. I really, you know, we'll be back next week to talk about more Game of Thrones and probably something else. Um, and, uh, you know, um, oh, just before before we go, uh, so that I can make it a, a complete three for three, my dad lied to me about Roy Orbison and told me he was blind when I was a kid. I, I need to get that in every episode thus far. Just see how long the streak can go, real again. Did but. your did your family find out about this yet? Um, no, my mother has been in uh, in, in Italy, where assumably assume uh, where I assume that presumably they don't have podcasts. And my father, I brought it up today when I was seeing him, and he was like, "Oh, you have a podcast?" And it's like I I've, I've told you about this a number of times. Also, I post about it incessantly on Facebook, so you know. Uh, He's yeah, very so good about uh, resharing your tour articles. He is very good about that. Yeah, I don't think um, he's quite on the podcast train yet. No, no. I, I know he listens to My Favorite Murder, but that's mostly because of my stepmother. Um, but, yeah. but he calls it that show with the girls who talk about the bad things. So that feels good. Um, I yeah. bet they... What, what's, what's their theme music? Oh, um, no, oh, it's, oh, it's, it's Karen Kilgareth just singing my favorite murder while strumming the guitar. They wrote their own. That's the, that's the ticket. Oh. You gotta... Yeah. That's the, uh, God. Oh, what if we used the recording that you and your brother did of, um, a message in a bottle that's just bass and drums because neither of you play the guitar. <laughs> No, no, it's just bass and guitar. Oh, it's just bass and guitar. Okay. Okay. Oh my God. How did you remember that? Um, honestly, it's because last week, uh, my friend Sam and I were, um, watching an ad for fool's gold. Um, all of, and all of the trailers for it have message in a bottle <laughs> under the trailer. And it was like, is that the Matthew you know, McConaughey? Is that a Matthew McConaughey? Movie? It, is a, it is a pre-McConaissance Matthew McConaughey, yeah. Kate Hudson film where they are, um, uh, he is a washed up beach bum, uh, like Florida Keys treasure hunter. Uh, and she is his ex-wife. And for some reason, Donald Sutherland is in it. Really? How is this really not a Dirk Pitt tale? That is, that is exactly what I thought. This, this needs to be a Dirk Pitt novel. Uh, I guess there's not enough green technology in it for it to qualify. No, uh, who, oh, Clive Cussler. Clive Cussler is, we're, yes. we're talking about Clive Cussler. Um, who wrote uh, every, or wrote, I guess, a third of all the books your dad likes. Uh, not you, Ben, but you collectively, your dad, you listener. If, if you're a ranch hand or a lighthouse keeper, your dad definitely likes Clive Cussler. Yes, it's Clive and Cussler it's and James Spader. Never no, helped you. It's not James Spader. Who am I thinking of? Who wrote Tom Clancy? I'm thinking Tom Clancy, very different than James Spader. Not a fox at all. James Spader's Hunt for Red October. Oh, my God. But, yeah. So, okay. So, you're watching Fool's Gold. They played Message in a Bottle. Yes. And and, um, you somehow knew that when I was in college, my brother and I made a recording of about half of... uh, Oh, no. I I thought you were in middle school. 
Oh, that's a very different story. It was a story you told me like sheepishly and in immense confidence uh, when we were roommates in grad school. But I, I really thought you were in middle school, and I thought, oh, it's so cute. Two, two like twelve-year-old boys playing two-thirds of Message in a Bottle. <laughs> Next time, I'm going to have to tell you about my piano recital. Oh, I'm excited to hear about that. As is all of the Panhandles of America, I'm sure. Yeah, because this was my this was my debut piano recital, and this was two months ago. <laughs> oh man, I'm really excited to hear about it. Yep, it's going right. to be yeah. This is yeah. We we need to just leave it there, and we do. That's the hook for the next episode. Yeah, tune in next week for more Game of Thrones and Ben's piano recital. Yeah, so I don't. We're gonna have to figure out what to talk about next time. We got no more books. We got Game of Thrones. Yeah, we got your piano recital. Got and, my piano uh, recital. I'll text you some other ideas that I've been having for how we could extend this past. Okay. We got after next, but yeah, hit the uh, hit the theme music. We're gonna know. keep this going past Game of Thrones. We, oh yes, I, I mean it's, we have to, or else what has this all been for? I mean, I because feel like. About 50% of all podcasts will fold with the end of yes, Game of Thrones. Absolutely. And then we'll be there to pick up the slack. We'll be there. We'll be there yeah. for all you lonely, lonely cowpokes out in the bunkhouse in the Texas panhandle. <laughs> Amarillo. Sending out an SOS. Sending out an... Sorry, I'm trying to like build to it and then i realized yeah. like i was not going to continue to to just do it so and that's all i can do for fair use so. you like how uh sting does like kind of a fake caribbean accent on that yeah i mean like, really he does that on a lot, lot of songs yeah 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 i feel like there's gonna be i'm gonna say i was gonna say there's gonna be a reckoning where sting's gonna be found to be real problematic but we definitely already know that <laughs> the reckoning has come yeah, I feel like he's just grandfathered in to, yeah. uh, we're just, there's just some, we just got to let him slide. Cause otherwise we're never, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise who is going to be our beast Raban? No, he's not beast Raban. He's. He, oh, are you talking about Dune? I'm talking about Dune. I'm talking about he's, Sting's he's Fade, Fade Routha, however you oh, say it. Fade Routha. Yeah. I, you know what? I would watch a film that's just all Harkin and backstory, like a Roman orgy of cruelty and and uh, and Gong Jabars and and Fade Rautha. It'll still be Sting. Yeah, they should do that instead of the this Dune remake. Yeah, they're talking yeah. about. Wait, do we know who Fade Rautha is going to be in the new one? It was Mick Jagger in the never made Jodorowsky uh, <laughs> the- one. Jodorowsky, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I bet somebody knows. I bet someone does. I bet it's Denis Villeneuve, or however you pronounce his name. Dennis Villeneuve. (laughs) Dennis Newtown. Dennis Newtown. This has been Lincoln and Wells. (laughs) Sending out an SOS. (laughs) Just 100,000 castaways. Islands uh, lost at sea. You know, if you say it without the fake Jamaican accent, it sounds wrong. And I do think we should credit Sting with. So with this being is able just, to... yeah, it's just the cast of the Marvel movies. Yes, 
with a couple people from other superhero movies. It's Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa, Zendaya, Dave Bautista, Rebecca Ferguson, who's from uh, Mission Impossible, which is basically an Avengers movie. Oh, you were gonna, you were gonna say Mission Impossible. I was gonna say Greatest Showman. Uh, <laughs> which and there you have it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Oscar Isaac is Duke Leto Atreides, which awesome. is kind of interesting. Stellan Skarsgård is Baron Harkonnen, so more Marvel. Yes. Uh, God, Although I can't find Fade Routh on here. Fuck. But Dave Bautista is, is Beast Raban, right? Yes. Okay, well, that's pretty good casting. See full cast. There's Denny Villeneuve. Villeneuve. <laughs> We've lost all of the French panhandles. Panhandlers. No, that's a different thing. <laughs> No, they're panhandlers, and they live in a panhandle. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Brittany, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously, we're we'll a podcast about Cornwall. Brittany. <laughs> fade Routh. Oh, well, mm-hmm. there's no Fade Routha. Okay, he hasn't been cast yet, or they've cut Fade Routha. Because um, the story rate, works really well without Fade Routha. It does. It. I mean, well, like on the one hand, a part of me goes like, eh. <laughs> You're not totally wrong. <laughs> uh, this has been a Dune fan cast. Um, we are your your Benny Jesuit witch hosts. Um, I said Benny Jesuit, which is a different Benny thing. Jesuit. I'm, I are mean, which learned, <laughs> liberal-minded, <laughs> cassock-wearing, uh, astronomy-studying yes. witch people who give people bitey snake boxes yes god actually that sounds a lot like benny jesuit which is so you know um religion is the open to the masses that's it today from lincoln and wells i'm tyler dean and i'm ben miller and uh we will oh god i don't know I need a sign off. We need a sign off. Is, we don't have a sign on or a sign off. I know we need to. We, I was going to say something yeah. about, I was like, I can't, I can't go to the lighthouse keeper. Well, like, right. Right. Um, okay. So you're Ben Miller. I'm Tyler Dean and fear is the mind killer. Oh, but we did that before too. We but did. Oh shit. A sign off. We have very bad. Like we don't have a lot of things we talk about. One of the things we talk about is Dune even though it's a book I do not care for. But this is the end of our podcast. <laughs> How about I'm Ben Miller and you're Tyler Dean and I'm available to play Fade Routha. Oh, that's good. We're going to keep doing that until they cast Fade Routha. Yeah, we're going to turn it into a Trolls World Tour thing where we're going to yes. make it happen through the force. Oh my God, our... Lincoln and Wells will be in the Dune film that is definitely already filmed. <laughs> We'll be in, we'll be in, in, you know, uh, prize winning horses of Dune or whatever the like. Eighth well, we'll be in Dune too, which is children yes. of Dune. Oh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair we, enough. We can be Dune children. We are very just, good at being, we yeah. just look old cause we're weathered by the hot Dune sun. It's true. And the it's fact true. that we've never had any water that wasn't our own piss. Right. And your eyes piss. are already, are already blue from, from taking in too much of the spice. So it's true. You know. Yeah. Wait, I can't remember the color of your eyes. No, they are blue. You. Oh, thank God. Thank God. 
You got my um, wife's name and my eye colors. Yes. So if you're ever in, if you ever have like global amnesia, I will be able to, to find you and rescue you because I know your wife's name and your eye color. And you know, that I look like Abe Lincoln. Yes. Uh, you've just eliminated 99% of the world population. It's true. It's true. But watch, they're going to find some very strange, like Lithuanian man who looks exactly like Abe Lincoln, who's married to like a Mariska and, you know, has, has piercing blue. Um, yeah, they're going to punch the, those three details into the Skynet you yeah. know, surveillance program that's accessing every CCTV around the world. And uh, yeah, you're going to end up co-hosting this podcast with... Uh, with the only Lithuanian Fremen. Yeah, I wasn't able to come up with a Lithuanian ma- man's name on uh, the spot. The, the only Lithuanian I can Frodo. think of right now... Yeah, Hannibal Lecter is Lithuanian. Frith... Frith Hannibal... Uh, but clearly the name is not Lithuanian. <laughs> That's a Carthaginian's name. Lithuanian. Well, Vilnius. Vilnius. That's a good name. Oh, Vilnius is a very good name. So that'd be like if you were co-hosting this with someone named Chicago or something. Yes. Yes. uh, Um, That's almost, that's almost uh, like uh, a disappointing George Lucas Star Wars first name. Uh, You know that Emperor Palpatine's first name is Sheev? Yeah, yeah. Sheev Palpatine. <laughs> scourge, scourge of the galaxy. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Palpatine, just, you know, <laughs> they were on their way home from, like, like, Galactic Hospital. Yeah, as stupid as Darth Sidious is as a name, it's like, it's better than Sheev. It is better than Sheev. Where did you read that? Um, I was told it by a friend who was looking up all of these Star Wars names on uh, Wikipedia. Um, also, Grand Moff Tarkin's first name is Wilhoff, which which feels right. I feel like Peter Cushing probably played wi- not just Wilhoff. Wilhoff. Yeah. Wilhoff Tarkin. Yeah. And so he just changed his name to Grand Moff? To Grand Grand Moff. Yes, to Grandma Tarkin. I guess um, he 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 had a child named Sheev. Yes. And then a grandchild, and so he became a Grand Moff. Yeah, yeah. And, and now just just so we all know also, like I'm sure everyone on the panel already knows this, but um we are aware that the the style of music that Figrin Dan and the Modal Modes, that's the Cantina band play is called jizz jizz it's called jizz because george lucas wanted to change one letter in an extant style of music and did not do any research i mean research is not even (laughs) what you would call that i i think i think though like I mean, by research, I don't mean like you'd look up, but just like if you come up with a space word that you don't think anyone else has said before, the least you can do is say it in a room full of other people and go like, hey, guys, what do you think of the word jizz? 
And yeah, like, say, say not- it to Harrison Ford, and you'll yeah. find out real quick whether it's a problem. <laughs> Harrison Ford knows all too well about the perils of jizz. And that's our show. Harrison Ford, <laughs> a humble carpenter from the panhandle. Absolutely. Hopefully Callista Flockhart can free him from whatever whatever door he's trapped under. Wasn't Harrison whatever. Ford a carpenter who then ascended to being an actor at age 33? And then descended to being a plane crash victim every day of his life thereafter. But what I'm getting at is, is it possible that he's Jesus? Oh, I see. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, yes. I, I think I think maybe, because Jesus did die in a plane crash. Oh my god. Oh god. What? Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna release the last half hour of this as like a, a special edition. <laughs> yeah, we this <laughs> This might have to be two episodes. I this don't know. May, I think it's a good possibility. It is right now just about the length of two normal podcast episodes. So, yeah. And I just found a an article called 41 Rugged Facts About Harrison Ford." So between that and my piano recital, we got a lot of a lot to dig into. Yes, I'm excited for next week. Uh, I'm Tyler Dean. I'm Ben Miller, and uh, just hang in there out in the Panhandles. Just try to survive. And save your resources, save your food, shoot at strangers. dies in a car a plane wreck we have to we have to take this episode off <laughs> oh all right i hear your cat calling for you yeah it is it is fucking dinner for him all right all right, all right. All right.